Oh, Father, I, I, I do think this morning of the Jewish feasts and festivals that we'll cover today and how many of them were explicitly for children to teach them just the, the ways of God and your faithfulness and your goodness. And I would pray for the, the children who are here this morning and listening. Uh, Lord, we pray that they would find a, a joy in your word that um, God finds satisfaction in their soul. God, that, that gives them a, a genuine encouragement uh, that they can read the Bible and can understand it because it is the power that gives us, it is the Bible that gives us power to live and through the Holy Spirit. So God, I, I pray even now that your Holy Spirit would come, you'd help me as I teach this, um, this great topic, this deep topic, so many things to talk about. I pray you'd help me to know what to skip and what to pass over quickly. Give me the the wisdom even now to, to do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, every culture has its holidays it celebrates. Just think about America, think about us, and we celebrate a lot of holidays. Right? What, what are the biggest holidays we celebrate? Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving, New Year's, right? Absolutely. Maybe some others. Christmas, good. Fourth of July. Labor Day, Memorial Day, Valentine's Day, Groundhog's Day, good. So, what? What? May Day, exactly right, May 1st. One of my son's favorite is April Fool's Day. Uh, others, birthdays, who do we celebrate birthdays? George Washington's birthday? Martin Luther King's birthday? Abraham Lincoln's birthday. Um, maybe important people in the life of our country. Christopher Columbus, discovering America. We celebrate in memory of St. Patrick. Some religious holidays there. Palm Sunday, Good Friday. It's also Flag Day, the Ides of March. One of the, the days that I like to celebrate the most, you all know this over the years, is um, the longest day of the year, June 21st. Our family is almost invariably outside having a picnic someday, waiting until the very last moment of the sun goes down on June 21st. I think the French, they call it French Bastille Day, perhaps. And there's lots of foreign holidays that are celebrated here in America. A lot of Jewish holidays, some we'll look at today. But can you think of some foreign holidays taught, taught, celebrated? Hanukkah, absolutely. Boxers Day, Boxing Day. Boxing Day is Canada. Yes? Okay, good. I have no idea what Boxing Day is. So, but I... Cinco de Mayo. Even Muslims in our community, Ramadan. Chinese New Year. Just lots of, lots of holidays. And sometimes, like this Boxing Day, it's like difficult. Like, who knows what Boxing Day is? Yeah, what is it? Michelle, what is it? Ah, I didn't know that. So is it like in January sometimes, or is it like December 26th? Okay, all right. Okay, huh? The day after Christmas. Okay, you box all it. Maybe, maybe I don't know. But sometimes our, our, our holidays are difficult to explain, like, um, like who St. Patrick is. 
That's a great holiday to celebrate, actually. If you, if you just look into St. Patrick, he was a, a Bible-believing evangelical who went and was enslaved to Ireland, and then he kind of went back and they had a heart, and he brought the gospel to Ireland. All these Irish Catholics, right, celebrate St. Patrick, and he brought the Bible to him. You can read his autobiography. It's really short. It's about, you know, you can read it in half an hour. So when St. Patrick's Day comes along, you, you, you can do that. Or, or, or some things are weird. Like, why do we look, Groundhog's Day at least, why do we look at the, sh- the shadow on February 2nd? What's that about? Or why is it on April 1st that we, we play all these tricks? Uh, it is interesting that people coming from a foreign, foreign land sometimes is hard. We've had um, foreign exchange students in our home for Thanksgiving. Uh, many years ago, there was a program in Rockford that, that did that. And trying to explain about Thanksgiving, it, it goes back way to, to the Puritans in in England or in Dutch or wherever they were, Denmark, and finding difficulty. And so coming across the United States, seeking religious freedom, and then encountering the Indians and the problems they had there, and Squanto comes in and talking about that, and then the feasts that they have, and we celebrate Thanksgiving. And oftentimes we have, um, we have given them, our, our foreign friends, like these little children's books about Thanksgiving and trying to ex- explain it all. The Pilgrims of Plymouth and Three Young Pilgrims, just trying to explain what, what Thanksgiving is. Um, but others, others are hard to understand as well. You might be so ingrained in your society and all these holidays seem to, seem to totally make sense. But, but what about this holiday here? Holy. H-O-L-I. I mean, this is like one of the messiest holidays that I've ever seen. This is over in uh, Nepal. And, and kids, what do they have on their faces? Can you tell? It's like a chalk stuff that's like all over their faces. Now... You, you explain to me. You, you try to... Uh, what's that about? <laughs> they like have these chalk wars on this day and they anoint people and they, the more they get, they think they're going to have more blessings from the gods. That's holy. Or, or how about this? Tihar is the festival of lights. And I can understand the festival of lights, um, but, but here they, they build like these, these bamboo temporary swings that are only up for like two weeks and the kids swing on them and yours beloved got a chance to swing on this thing. And I had it going. I was scared I was going to break the thing down, but I was assured it was strong enough for me, and so it didn't break. But that's Tihar. Or, or what about this one in Nepal? Shat Puja. They, they set up these uh, colorful red and, and uh, yellow booze down by the river, and they, they fast all day, and then they bring their food offerings that's got all this, like down the lower left, got all this chalk. It doesn't really look very good, but when the sun goes down, they worship the sun, moon, and the water. Like, why is that? What's, what's that about? Or this one, Lakshmi Puja. Lakshmi is the, the goddess of health, wealth, and prosperity. And uh, what they do is they, they form these, these uh, little decorative little, little things on the, the sidewalk there. And then they've got this path that leads inside. And they want Lakshmi to come in. And, you know, it's a little bit like um, they, they, they grab the food there. And then, then, then Lakshmi's going to come into their house and give them blessing. And you might even notice, like down here, that looks like the Nazi symbol. It's not the Nazi symbol, but to you, you think it's the Nazi symbol. It's a Buddhist symbol, because it's backwards than the Nazi symbol, actually. But you just don't know, because you're not, you're not really in that culture. And sometimes it's hard to understand. Well, this morning, we're going to go to some festivals and feasts that might be a little more difficult to understand. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 23. 
We're going to look this morning at the feasts and festivals of the Jewish people. Um, and these might be a little bit more difficult. And what makes it more difficult is Jews celebrate it today, but they've tacked on a bunch of traditions which aren't in the Bible, but they're not anti-Bible. They're just all these traditions of what they do. Today we're going to really kind of stick to what the Bible says and uh, points, how it points to Christ. That's what Leviticus is, is all about, the um, pointing to Jesus, these shadows. And we're going to see, even you can see the divine origin of these things right there in verses 1 and 2. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. We see, what sets the, the feasts and festivals of Leviticus 23 apart, or um, the, the feasts and festivals of the Bible, are these are the ones that God set and God appointed. Even he, he says that, that these are my appointed feasts there at the end of, of verse 2. Now, now Christmas and Easter and Thanksgiving and Mother's Day and Father's Day are, are not wrong to celebrate. I mean, there's everything right about celebrating the, the coming of Christ into this world. There's everything right about celebrating His resurrection from the dead. And everything right about gathering a day of where we, we give thanks to God on Thanksgiving or honoring mothers and fathers. Everything right about that. Only... These are man-made. But what we're going to see here is holidays that are God-made. In fact, you might even think of them as holy days, as I have titled my message this morning. We want to look at the first holy day. It's simply the Sabbath. Verse 3, one verse. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest. A holy convocation. You shall do no work. Today a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. These words take us back to the Ten Commandments, back to the days when Moses initially went up to receive the law in Exodus chapter 20. And indeed, they, they go back even beyond Exodus. They, they go really to creation. Listen to what God wrote. God told Moses to write, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day it's a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or your sojourn who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and He made it holy. See, God gave the Sabbath as a creation ordinance. God worked six days to create the world, and He rested on the seventh. So also Israel is to work six days and rest on the seventh. God gave His command to His people. He created us. He knows how we function. And He knows it's good for us to work six days. And it's good for us to rest one day out of the week. And I just commend the Sabbath to you. Working and resting. Some people get so hung up in the resting part of it that they forget the working part of it. But work six days and rest on one day would encourage you that. Now, that was woven deep in the fabric of those Jews who read this, and particularly by the time of Christ, it was woven too deeply into them, I believe, because when Jesus came along and healed on the Sabbath, the religious leaders were all up in arms, and they were angry. What are you doing on the Sabbath? You can't be doing that. You need to be, you need to be resting. You can't do that. That's unlawful. Do it on the other days, but not on the Sabbath. And they got all worked up about this. And actually, what, what happened was they became the Sabbath police. 
just more concerned about people, what they were resting, rather than realizing what the whole purpose of the Sabbath was. See, Jesus said that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, God, God wasn't back there in creation just saying, oh, I need to create this people that every seven days are going to do nothing. Because that's a Sabbath, that's like a, an eternal thing. And so I'm going to create man just so they can fulfill the Sabbath. It's not that at all. It's, it, he created man and the Sabbath is for us. It's a help to us. That's what he gave the Sabbath for, for a relaxation, celebration, a joy. That's what all these feasts and festivals are. It's the gifts from the hand of God to bless his people. In fact, th- think about this. In Leviticus 23, all these feasts and festivals, we are commanded to rejoice commanded to hold these festivals. And I just say, this is, this is so good of God that He wants us to be refreshed in these things, to remember Him, to worship Him in these ways. It's the kind of God we serve. God says on the Sabbath, you need your rest, so take your rest. And you guys know what this is like when you have children who want to stay up and stay up, like our youngest do, like uh, our middle child, like she's old enough, she puts herself to bed. But our youngest do, stay. you won't go to bed unless I tell you to. Sometimes. <laughs> Maybe like once or twice or whatever. Not often. But when you get older, you'll, you'll start doing that. Okay? But oftentimes, we need to tell them. And God is telling us you need to rest. You need to rest. Well, let's look at the feasts. And uh, the feasts, by the way, break down into two types of feasts. There are spring feasts and there are fall feasts. The spring te- feasts, help me now. When do they take place? They take place in the spring. Okay, and the fall feasts take place in the... In the fall. Okay, good. We got that. All right, well, let's look at the spring feast. The first one is the, the Passover, verses 4 and 5. We read simply this. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them in the first month on the 14th day of the month at twilight. It is the Lord's Passover. So right here we see why these, springs are called, these feasts are called spring feasts because this Passover is to be celebrated, as it says... Right there in verse, um, verse 5, on the first month and the 14th day. Now, if you know anything about the Passover, you know that it's celebrated not January 14th, but it's celebrated sometime in March and April, and it, it kind of drifts. That's because the Jewish calendar is not like our calendar, and uh, the dates and times are, are messed up, and they're a little bit different their months don't correspond exactly with our months. And their months don't begin exactly when our, our months begin. But their calendar begins about March and April in the first month, which is commonly called today Nisan. In fact, today is the 30th of Nisan. So it's Nisan 30th. Now back in the days of the Bible, they hadn't named it Nisan yet, and so they simply called the first month, what do they call it, do you remember? Do you know? Days in the Bible, what they call the first month? We call ours January they call it Nisan now. Do you know what they call it in the Bible? This is a test for later. They called it the first month. Okay, That's just what it says here, right? The first month and the 14th day. It's where the calendar began. And the calendar began there because that's the time which God brought Israel out of slavery. Exodus 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. And so, just right then, when they exited out of, of Egypt, that was the first month, right then. So when they started their calendar, because that's when Israel began. And on the tenth day of that month, every family was to take a lamb into their household. On the fourteenth day of that month, they were to kill the lamb when the sun goes down. 
and they're to sprinkle that blood on the doorpost of the houses. And if the angel of the Lord passed then through Egypt, it destroyed, killed all the firstborn of uh, Pharaoh's house, of the servant's house, of cattle, of all the firstborn, unless there was blood over the doorposts. In those cases, God passed over that house. And that's what we celebrate in the Passover. We, we, we celebrate the fact that God passed over those who had the blood applied to them. This is the feast that Jesus celebrated in the Last Supper. And when Jesus took that cup, he said, this cup is the new covenant of blood in my body. Do this in remembrance of me. Don't remember that anymore, but you remember me. That's what the Lord's Supper is all about. And with those words, Jesus identified himself as the Passover lamb. Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. And as we believe in him, his blood is metaphorically sprinkled on the doorposts of our souls. And so that when God's judgment comes, he will pass over our sins because it's the blood of Christ that, that signals God to look apart from us, that reconciles us to God, that, that God's wrath just goes over us. That's what the Passover is about. That's how we apply it into Jesus. We could look into the Passover a lot longer. All right? We've had some Seder meals before here at uh, Rock Valley Bible Church. It takes a whole evening to kind of think through the rich symbolism of the Passover. But as it contains two verses here, and we've got to get through the entire chapter, we're going to skip it right now. Okay, the spring feast. We've seen the Passover. Let's go second. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, verses 6 through 8. And by the way, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover uh, are, are really oftentimes considered one feast as they, because they, they're so tightly linked. They so look back at the exact same thing about the, uh, the deliverance from Egypt. We read this in verse 6. And on the 15th day of the same month, the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. Again, this takes us back to Israel being rescued out of the land of slavery. They left in haste and didn't have time for bread to rise, and God wanted them to remember of how they left in haste, right? To bring back the remembrance of these historical events in the life of their country, like we do with with uh, George Washington, he's the first president. He's the admiral that uh, crossed the Delaware, that led us to war, or that, that delivered us. Or you think about Christopher Columbus, who discovered our land. That's all they're doing, going back to see what God has done for the people. The reason for unleavened bread is given in Deuteronomy 16, verse 13. Verse 3, rather. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For came, you came out of the land of Egypt in haste. So you came out, it's the bread of affliction, you should go, go quickly, and so therefore for seven days they remember that. Now one of the things I really appreciate about these Jewish feasts and festivals is that they have a reason that God is focusing their attention upon what was done, what God had done for them. And it's especially focused on children, particularly the Passover is really a children's holiday. Or later, we're not going to look at Purim because Purim comes later as the book of Esther, which comes during the exile period, but we're looking here at the time of Moses, that holiday. But even there, the children are really involved in all the Jewish holidays. They are because it's a teaching opportunity for children. And I would say in America, you can take the holidays that we celebrate and use them likewise as teaching opportunities for your children. Think about Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, the world calls it Turkey Day in football, but you can arrange your Thanksgiving feast to have an opportunity to thank the Lord and really help Him. Or 
Christmas has become known as merchandise and presents and materialism, but you can direct kids into what it means that God has come into the world. Or Easter has become bunnies and Easter eggs, but you can focus the attention upon, upon the resurrection or Labor Day, Memorial, we just, Memorial Day. We just think of them as days off, but they are worthy days. Memorial Day, think about the dead who have died in service for our country. Or Labor Day, honoring those who, who work hard. And I encourage you, parents especially, but you can even do this if you have no kids at home, just talk and reflect upon those days and, and offer prayers of thanks to God. Now, there's some holidays this won't work with, okay? Halloween, don't be trying to, don't be trying to do that, all right? And uh, perhaps there are others, like Ides of March might be a good chance to talk about Julius Caesar, I'm sure, and for, there's some others that are probably a bit Mardi Gras. If you look into that, that's probably not so good either. But most holidays have a genuine redeeming aspect. And we see this about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You can picture the Jewish family sitting down and saying, we're eating unleavened bread because we left in haste. And we need to remember how God delivered us out. And you can do that on Mother's Day, Father's Day. Go around the table and say, kids, I want you to say something very honoring to mom. And I want you, here's my homework to you, is that sometime throughout the day, I want you to do something that's honoring to her. That's what we're doing. This is a day to honor our our parents or grandparents' day that Hallmark invented, right? Um, maybe the phone companies did before phones were a little more cheaper across the Internet with Skype and FaceTime. But, but call them and say, Hi, Grandma, hi, Grandpa, we just really appreciate you on, on this day. You can do that. What a great, great, great way to remember the things that God has done in our lives, the people that God has placed in our lives to honor them. All right, let's move on. We got the, the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, now the Feast of First Fruits is where things start to get interesting and a bit speculative, by the way. So just bear with me. I'll try to be as straightforward as I can. Verse 9, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, so that it may be accepted on the day after the Sabbath the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, a year old without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma, and a drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hin. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh, until this same day, until you have brought the offering of your God is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. Now this holy day is really a time of placing trust in the Lord. It's the beginning of the harvest. Now being a hot and a desert climate in Israel, the growing season was during the winter months when it rained. But during the summer months, it's like California or Arizona, which is a total desert until you bring your irrigation in. And so this is kind of right at the end, springtime of, of the harvest. In fact, whenever we visit my in-laws in uh, California, I always tease my mother-in-law. I say, things are always so brown here. It never rains here. Because we've been out there in the summertime. We make a trip every summer out there to see Grandma and Grandpa um, of our 20-plus years of marriage. 1992, i got to calculate really fast. 28 years of marriage? 27. No, I'm wrong. 23 years of marriage. We, we've made 22 trips out. There's one summer we didn't come. Sorry. <laughs> and um, we've made a trip out every summer. We don't hardly go any other place except we go there. And uh, I always tell her how brown it is. I don't think we've ever seen it rain out there when we've been there. Maybe once. 
maybe once for five minutes in all the 20 summers that we have spent, whatever, our two weeks out in California. So I always tell her how brown it is. She said, no, 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 it does get green. It does get green. I'm like, yeah, yeah, right. Well, one time I remember flying, going to Nepal and flying there in the springtime, and she said, see, Steve, look at how green it is. Look at all the hills and how green they are. But see, during the summer, everything's parched and can't grow. In, in Israel, it's the same climate as Southern California. And, uh, but during the wintertime, when it, when it rains, that's when the, the harvest comes. And so here we have springtime. This is the early harvest. And what they're supposed to do is supposed to take the first of the crop. This is probably the barley crop because the barley uh, springs up first. And even before they eat it, verse 14, you shall neither eat bread nor grain, parched or fresh, until this same day, until you've brought your offering to your God. So first fruits. The fruit is coming first to God. We're offering up this first bit to God as more or less a pledge or a promise or a hope or placing our faith in God that we're giving our first to God. Uh, a few weeks ago, I preached on Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. Uh, I said off the top, Honor the Lord with your wealth and from the first of all your produce so that your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. And that's exactly what that proverb, chapter 3, verse 9, is talking about. We're giving the first of our produce to God and trusting then that God is going to bring in the rest of the harvest. That captures the heart of the first fruits. Now, when we think about the first fruits in Jesus, okay, here's my possible stretch, but I think it's appropriate that, that I think we think of the resurrection is what we should think about. First of all, I think about the date. We see in verse 11, the sheaf is to be waved on the day after the Sabbath. Now, that could be the day after the Sabbath, after the first Sabbath, after Passover, which seems like a very reasonable reading, um, another reading, as the Jews do today, is they call it the 16th. So you had Passover on the 14th, you had the 15th be the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then this is the next day, considering the Feast of Unleavened Bread as a Sabbath. Um, I, I'm, I'm not exactly sure, but sometime then, either it always lands on a Sunday, or every seven years it would land on a Sunday, this day when they have the, uh, the, the first fruits day. And you just think about that. If it lands on a Sunday, as it probably did when Jesus was crucified on Friday, having the Passover, and then Saturday's Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then Sunday, the first fr- Jesus raised on Sunday. It's the first fruits. And his resurrection was what? The promise of a future harvest. Now, 1 Corinthians 15 uses the language of first fruits to describe Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15 goes through all this fact about if Jesus wasn't risen from the dead, what fools we are. But, 1 Corinthians 15:20, in fact, Christ has been risen from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ has been risen from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, Jesus is the first. He's the, the promise and the pledge of a future harvest. And Paul goes on, For us by a man came death, by a man also came resurrection from the dead. In Adam's case, all die. So in Christ, all shall be made alive. Each one in his own order. Christ is the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. In other words, Christ is coming first. He's raising first. And then later, the others will come along with him. And I, I do believe that the parallels here are, are good enough and sufficient, especially how quickly it comes right after Passover. Here's the, the resurrection, the first fruits, that Christ is the first one and he's promised a harvest right afterwards. You say, well, when's the harvest come? Well, let's go on to our next feast, the Feast of Weeks. Verse 15. 
You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath. That is from Sunday. You shall count seven full weeks from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. Right, That day you brought it that in, that Sunday you brought that in, the day after the Sabbath. You shall count fifty days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two tenths of an ephah, and they shall be a fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. And you shall present with the bread seven lambs a year old without blemish, and one bull from the herd and two rams. They shall be a burnt offering to the Lord, with their grain offering and their drink offerings, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord." Verse 19, and you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering and two male lambs a year old as a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord. With the two lambs they shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall make a proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It's a statute forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. See, in verse 17, we see what I mentioned about the waving of, of two loaves. Did I mention that? I'm trying to think. No, I didn't. I'm thinking about the, the barley was first, but later what happens here is two loaves of bread are waved. It's as if the barley was just taken straight from the field, but the loaves of bread are taken as, as wheat, and which, which matures actually later than the barley, and then ground up and then put together and... Um, presented and baked as bread, fully raised, fully timed, and now it's coming. It's kind of like the end of the harvest when everything comes in here. Um, as we see here in, in, uh, in verse 22, that the full harvest doesn't mean that every stock has been brought in because God said provide for the poor. He just kind of slides that in. When he says, and you, when you reap your harvest of your land, you shall not reap right up to the edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. In other words, right? you don't reap everything, but you bring enough in, and so you leave some for the poor to go out and work, and those who work then are worthy of what they take and what they eat. But I want to direct your attention to verses 15 and 16. Right? Notice what's going on here. He says this, You shall count seven full weeks, from the day after the Sabbath that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, you shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present your grain offering to the Lord. So there's like a, a, a counting taking place. And, and, and if your house is anything like ours, maybe you've made some of these. Kids, you've made some of these? Yeah, what do you call them, Ruthie? A paper chain? And uh, this happens to be, we've done this several times when we've like gone on vacation, we've done this, how many days until vacation, or how many days until some event, or how many days until Grandma Lo and Grandpa Ray come, or something like that. This one happens to be just this past Christmas, is that right, Yvonne? Just this past Christmas, we're counting day, down days, and the kids every day just take off, take off one loop. That's exactly what's happening here. It's very similar to what God was telling Israel. When the Feast of Fruits happens, you start counting. And what are you supposed to count? You're supposed to count seven Seven weeks and the beginning and the end. That makes 50 days. In fact, even 50 days is mentioned there in, in verse 6. 50 days after the first fruits. What happened 50 days after the first fruits? You know what it was called? Pentecost. Penta means 
5, Pentecost means 50th. So the 50th day after the first fruits, you have Pentecost. And it was, it was celebrating the time when, when really all the harvest was in and, and we got everything. So they harvested over this month, month and a half or, or whatever it was. And of course, you remember what happened in the days of the early church. Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, is when people were around from all the different nations. And Yvonne and I, when we traveled to Israel some 15 plus years ago, we, um, 15 years ago, 14 years ago, I can't, forget my dates, okay? We're dealing with dates and calendars, but... I, we went to Israel, and we happened to be in Jerusalem during Pentecost. So we were in Jerusalem shortly before Pentecost, and kind of around, we got the lay of the land, what, what Jerusalem was like. And then it was Pentecost. All of a sudden, that city just, just swelled. Because the number of people that came to worship there during Pentecost was a lot. And that's what happened on the day of Pentecost, the early church. All these people from all around, many nations... In fact, they were commanded in Exodus chapter 23 to make this pilgrimage uh, once a year, right? The three feasts, uh, the Passover and uh, this feast of uh, weeks. And then also, I think the, I forget, I think it's the feast of booze. They were supposed to gather up into Jerusalem for that. And there were people all around, and that makes sense, that when the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they started speaking in these other languages, and these people from other places heard them speaking in these tongues, they're like, whoa, we can understand them, but they're, they're Galileans, how are they speaking in our language? And obviously how, it's by the Holy Spirit that poured out upon these disciples, they spoke the mighty words of God, and Peter stood up and said, this is precisely what God promised in Joel chapter 2 about younger daughters prophesying and speaking in tongues. And what happened after that? A harvest of people came in. 3,000 people came in. And what began on the day of Pentecost has continued ever since. God has faithfully called people to himself. Many have come to faith in Christ. And untold millions across the world have continued to come to Christ because of what the Holy Spirit is doing. Now, what I find amazing here in the, the Feast of Weeks, the disciples didn't understand what was going on. Here it was, the, the Feast of first fruits. Jesus had risen from the dead on that day. They were told to count 50 days. And, and they were about counting. And I'm not sure if they had that with their kids or they're counting and, the, and they're, they're doing this thing. And, and Jesus was with them for 40 of those days. And then Jesus says this in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And when the Holy Spirit come, they would receive power. Jesus said, Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And, and they were told to wait in Jerusalem. You just wait and pray until this happens. And they're on day 40 of their, their counting, going down to 50, whatever, 40, 50, 49, 48, 47. They're down to 10 and a day passes and they're on 9 and then they're on 8 and then they're on 7. They're counting this. They're saying, hmm, I wonder when Jesus will come. And at home, they're, they're counting down 5, Four, three. I wonder when. I wonder when this Holy Spirit thing is going to happen. And they're praying, and I'm like, "Hello, you're counting down." And to the day that the feast of weeks was going to happen, the paper chain reached its end. The Holy Spirit came. I think in retrospect, they could have looked back and said, "Ah, oh, Jesus said a little time. Little times maybe about ten days." We should have expected it. But that's where, where history is. Hindsight is twenty twenty. It's easy to connect, but I don't blame them for not getting it right. But think about it. These are the first four fruits. The Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, I think deal with the death of Jesus. First fruits deal with the resurrection of Jesus. And then the Feast of Weeks, the Pentecost, is dealing with the beginning of the church, the beginning of the harvest 
I believe all three of these, really, four of these, really prophesy of the, of the church and, and where we are. They tell of the, the things that happened. Now, we're going to transition now to the fall feast, and I think there's an argument that can be made that these speak about the second coming of Jesus. A little bit. Maybe I'm pushing a little bit. But, but after the second coming of Jesus, you, 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 can, you can check me someday in heaven. You go back and you say, Steve, I think you got it right, or no, you kind of missed it on that one. But I think that there are hints. Now, it's fuzzy, just like the first four were fuzzy, but there might be some hints that these are the second coming. If not, we'll... These are the fall feasts. These are what happened in the fall. These are a bit more, more difficult. Okay, first we have the Feast of Trumpets, 23 through 25. We read this. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with a blast of trumpets. There it is. A blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, for you shall present a food offering to the Lord. Now you can see why I call it a fall feast because all of a sudden we're in the, the seventh month. The first month is in March or April and the seventh month brings us down to March, April, May, September and October. It's about the seventh month, halfway through the year. And the, again, the Jewish calendar begins in the springtime and six months later we have the fall. Today the Jews call this month Tishri. Okay, let's see how well you've learned. What did they call it in biblical times, the seventh month? What did they call it? The seventh month. That's exactly what we see there, right? The seventh month, verse 24, and the first day of that month. Now what's interesting is they call the seventh month, first day, is called Rosh Hashanah. Rosh meaning head, top, peak, Hashanah of the year. This is like the head of the year. This is New Year. So you're thinking about New Year? The seventh month, first day. How can that be New Year? I thought the calendar started in... Uh, in uh, Nissan, like the first month. Well, you know, it's a little bit like America. Companies have fiscal years that start in such and such a date. Here it is that uh, the beginning of the new year starts seven months into their calendar. You might think of this. The religious year begins with Passover, and their agricultural year starts in the seventh month with the Feast of Trumpets. Okay? Because you think about it, the summertime, it's too hot to grow anything there. And they're going to start growing. This is the beginning of the harvest. It's the beginning of their agricultural season is what's taking place here. Anyway, on this day, trumpets are blown. A blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. And this begins, by the way, the, the, the next three feasts are all taking place in the seventh month. So they're all, they're all compact here. And we, we see pouring out here a, a time of sorrow and then a time of joy. And on this particular day, as it begins the new year, the, the celebration begins. It's almost like the, 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 the ball in Times Square falling down. And this is, this is the day for great joy. And let the celebration begin. Now, when we think about trumpets, we think about summoning people. Right? We do that in our Calvary, right? What does that mean? Get up! What about this? What does that mean? Stephanie, what does that mean? Maybe we ought to start playing taps at our house when times are good. It means to go to bed. The day is finished. And so like what, I don't know the tune they had here, but, but when they blew trumpets, either it was, hey, we got a solemn assembly, come everybody and gather, like they did um, the base of Mount Sinai. When the, the trumpet would blow, the people were commanded to come 
and uh, Moses then would consecrate the people that da, 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 come together for a holy convocation. Or oftentimes in the Bible, it's used for war. Ba, ba, right? Jericho, remember? Joshua blasted the trumpet. Or, or Midian, uh, when Gideon fought the battle of the Midianites, he blew trumpets. So trumpets were either gathering for war or a holy convocation. Here, obviously, it's a holy convocation. Just beginning the celebration. All right? Now, here's my stretch. I think this is referring to the second coming of Christ. At least... At least, at least pushing it. If you say, Steve, you're out of water, that, that's okay. You just think about the Jews. But I, I'm trying to think about Christ and, and the trumpet. So you, you think about, the New Testament speaks about trumpets. Not very much, but when it does, it talks about the Pharisees sounding a trumpet before they, they give their money. That, that's not what I was talking about here. But oftentimes, the most majority of times, it speaks about when God comes back. First Thessalonians 4.16, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, <clears throat> with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, dun, 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 the dead in Christ will rise. In, in Revelation 8 and 9, we see judgment coming with the return of Christ. Dun, 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 and the, the judgments are being poured out as the trumpets are, are going. And in fact, in Revelation 11:15, think about when the last trump sounded. The seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And it's at that last moment, in the twinkling of an eye, 1 Corinthians 15.42 says, the trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. I do believe this has an allusion to the final day. Now, once we get past the final day, it'll be a lot easier to tell you whether that was right or not. But if anything, it's calling everything to. Now, here we come, the Day of Atonement on our fall feast. The Day of Atonement. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now on the tenth day of this month is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. And you shall not do any work on that day, for it is a day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord, your God. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. And whoever does any work on that day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall not do any work. It's a statute forever through your generations and all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath, a solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves in the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening. From evening to evening shall you keep your Sabbath. Okay, when we were in Leviticus 16, we looked at this extensively on the, the day of days, the one day out of the year, when the priest of priests, the high priest, entered the Holy of Holies to offer the sacrifice of sacrifices, that one peak sacrifice. And uh, I, if you have any questions about that, you can go my message on, on Leviticus chapter 16. Uh, it's on the internet, by the way, in text. I've written it out, and uh, it's, it's all there. It's all my sermons are. Um, and that obviously mentions, thinks about, anticipates the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ, for sure. I mean, the book of Hebrews, I think particularly Hebrews chapter 9 and 10, are commentary on the Day of Atonement, when Christ would enter into the, the holy place. As Darren read from chapter 9, talking about the, the sacrifices that are performed are performed in the holy place to sanctify the holy place, but Christ had to, had to cleanse the heavenly things, and so he offered his sacrifice to cleanse the heavenly tabernacle, which the earthly tabernacle is just merely an example or a, a copy. And so that's what Christ did with his one sacrifice for all. You read that in chapter 10 then. It speaks about how there's one sacrifice for all time. It's a Christ entered. That's the day of, of atonement. And, and 
And it's not the blood of bulls and goats that atone now forever. It's the blood that Jesus did. And this, this day of atonement was like in light of all these sacrifices, this was the one thing that ended the sacrifices. That one sacrifice that absolutely was Christ. And what Jesus did, his sacrifice removed our sin far from us. His sacrifice dealt with our sins once for all. And obviously that's what it's talking about. But as we think about the future, I just want to pull out some things here that might, might guide us to the future as well. As we think about of all the feasts, this is the only one that's filled with sorrow. The others are joyful feasts. But this is a sorrowful feast. Consider verse 27. You shall afflict yourselves. That is, you shall humble yourselves. Probably it's talking about you shall clothe yourself in sackcloth. You shall put ashes on your head. You shall go about in humility. Uh, and look at the punishment if you don't do that. Verse 29. Whoever is not afflicted on the very day shall be cut off from his people. If you like ignore this holiday, God is angry and will cut you off from his people. It means possibly you might die or possibly you are banished from the, the country. Verse 32, it shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest and you shall afflict yourselves. Verse 32. Just there's, there's, From evening until evening, you should humble yourselves on this day. This the other days are all rejoicing, but this day is a day of, of sorrow, death, and agony. I think affliction rightly describes repentance and sorrow for sin. It's a time of, of agony. And look even here, the warning, verse 30. Whoever does any work on that day, that person I will destroy from among his people. If you don't obey this day, this is high consequence. I'm going to destroy you. And doing work on the Day of Atonement would trivialize the importance of that day. And I just think as the Feast of Trumpets might symbolize, anticipate the coming of Christ, I think this might represent just the final judgment when everything is finally done, done with. And certainly at that day there will be sorrow and there will be dead serious earnestness. There's never a day more serious than the judgment day when all of us stand, right? The books are open. There's the book of life, the book of deeds, and, and those who are in the book of life enter into heaven and those who aren't, they find their way into the lake of fire that burns forever. Listen, the only way you'll ever escape judgment that day is to have your name in the book of life. And the only way your name's in the book of life is if you've trusted Christ as your Messiah. And I know that on that judgment day that the work of Jesus is going to be brought up and talked about that one final day. Remember when Jesus died on Jerusalem to atone for the sins of those who believe? That's why you're in the book. And praise be to God, that lamb, that unblemished, that that spotless lamb that was crucified for us. And we praise and we worship him because it was his death for ours. And this ultimate day of atonement will be a topic of conversation on that final judgment day. It's the only way anyone will get in. And so perhaps it speaks of a final, dead, earnest, sober judgment day. Maybe not. That's okay. If you say, Steve, you're full of water, then that doesn't wash. That's fine. Let's go to the Feast of Booze, though, because I think this even helps us further. The Feast of Booze, our final feast today. <clears throat> and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month. So you still see it's the seventh month, right? We've had the Rosh Hashanah on the first day, and then coming on the tenth day of that month is the Day of Atonement, and then coming on the fifteenth day begins the Feast of Booze. And for seven days it is the Feast of Booths to the Lord, or tabernacles, or tents, feast of tents, you might even say. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. And on the eighth 
day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any work. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as times of holy convocation for presenting to the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings, grain offerings, sacrifice and drink offerings, each on its proper day. Besides the Lord's Sabbath and besides your gifts and besides all your vow offerings and besides all your free will offering, which you will give to the Lord. You almost think 37, 38 wraps things up, but he goes back and talks about the booth again. On the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of your land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. And on the first day shall be a solemn rest, and the eighth day there shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day of the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate as a feast to the Lord your God seven days in the year. It's a statute forever through your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths. That your generations will know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feasts of the Lord. Now, one of the things you see here is that when everything is finally brought in, but this is of the trees, because of the olive trees and the grapevines, they all grow throughout the summer even when it's hot. And so this is kind of all those being brought in. This is the, the new wine that's coming in that's being celebrated on this day with the, the Feast of Booze when, when everything's done. But of all the feasts, this one I think tends to be the most celebratory. It's a seven-day feast. That's what verse 34 and 39 speak about. And verse 40, you are commanded to rejoice before the Lord these seven days. This is a day, this is seven days, it's a week-long feasting and celebration. Whereas the Feast of Unleavened Bread was seven days, but it was more like just don't eat, the, uh, don't eat leaven, just keep it an unleavened bread. But this one, explicitly, it's like a feast for seven days. And I think particularly for children, this would have been very fun as they would have lived in booths and tents for seven days. Now, I know us older folk... Right? We think about living in a tent for seven days. We think about, oh, my aching back. I'm not sure I'll be able to do that. But the kids certainly will be able to do that. And they would love to spend outside in this tent. And again, another aspect. Remember our redemption from Egypt and what God made us to dwell in. He made us to dwell in these booths. Now, a couple things here lead me to think about just the eternal state. Dwelling with God dwelling in the places he's prepared for us, the celebration aspect of things coming in. And Revelation is described as the wedding feast of the Lamb, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And, and um, you know, maybe this, this, this feast is to, to focus our hearts beyond a seven-day feast into a, a seven-million-day feast where we'll be with the Lord forever. I don't know. But that, that would be my best guess if these three fall feasts point towards the future, right? The, the first one, Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, the, the death of Jesus, first fruits, he raised from the dead. And then the week's Pentecost when he begins his church and the harvest is done then at the Feast of Trumpets when the trumpet comes, when he's coming back and the Day of Atonement with the judgment with finality upon that one sacrifice of Christ dividing between the sheep and the goats and then being in the Feast of Booze forever. That's my attempt at kind of looking at, at these things. But I would be remiss if... We didn't finish my message in Colossians chapter 2. So take your Bibles, let's go to Colossians chapter 2, because the question that maybe has been asked in your mind that I haven't answered, that I thought about answering at the very first, but that might have diluted your interest in this, I said this, is, 
Should we keep these feasts and festivals? After all, these are the God-ordained holidays. Everything else is just human-made. But these are all God-ordained. Should we keep them? Should we feast this way? And here's my simple answer to that question. You are free to do so, but you are not bound to do so. In other words, if you want to, have at it. But if you don't want to, it's not a problem. See, when the gospel came into the world, salvation was extended to the Gentiles. And the big question of the Gentiles was this, is that, well, how much of the law of Moses should we submit them to? In Acts chapter 15, it tells about, should, should the Gentiles be circumcised so as to become under the law of Moses, right? To be saved, you need to at least be circumcised, a sign of the covenant, to, to be right with God. And they debated and they said, no, we're saved by faith alone. And so they said, if, if you keep circumcision, Paul says in Galatians, you're bound to keep the whole law. And I say this, if you think that to become a, a, be a, a good, sufficient Christian, you need to keep the feasts and festivals, you're, you're in trouble because you need to keep the whole law then. And you're sunk apart from Christ. But if you want to be circumcised, that's okay. Timothy was circumcised. Paul had Timothy circumcised. Titus, he didn't have circumcised. It's kind of interesting there. If you want to celebrate the feasts, celebrate the feasts. But if you don't want to, it's okay. You can take your Americanisms. Because when, the, when the, the, the gospel came to the Gentiles, it wasn't, the gospel isn't a culture-changing thing on the externals. In other words, when the gospel come, came to the Roman Empire... They didn't say, okay, Romans, right, we're done with our feast to Saturnalia. Right, we're done with all this. We've got to now institute the Jewish feasts and festivals. No. What they did is they just sanctified what they were doing. And that's what I've pressed you to do in America. Just sanctify the things in which you are involved in and engaged in. It's true of the feasts and festivals. If Acts 15 was talking about feasts and festivals, do we have to keep them? The resounding answer of the apostles would be no. But... The Jews, if they've lived, they've grown up with that, it's not, stop doing that. It's not that at all. It's like, Jews, that's where you've been in. That's what you understand. That's how you worship God. You see great significance in that. Have at it. Now, Christianize it. Certainly, like David told me, you're not going to offer the sacrifice, all these sacrifices. You're not going to offer those sacrifices because Christ was their sacrifice. But go ahead, Jews, celebrate that. Christians, you want to celebrate that? Absolutely, go ahead. But here's the danger. As Colossians Chapter 2, verse 16 says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. And here's the idea. When we get to something we really know and we love and enjoy and is working for us, we want to take that and pass it on to other people. And it can be just a suggestion. It could be, hey, why don't you join us in this? Or it can be, oh, you really need to keep this because this is going to do this for you. That, that tends to be Gnostic. That tends to be adding to your salvation. And Paul says, let no one judge you in these things. So, so in other words, you, you celebrate those, yes, but don't hold that in judgment with others. And I know that that's a, that's a problem sometimes for Messianic congregations, which I, I applaud and it's great. They're taking the Jewish cultures and they're, and they're forming their church around that. And that's wonderful. But sometimes there can be this judgmental, legalistic spirit that says, oh, you have to do your Christianity our way according to our feasts and our customs because these are what God called us to do. It's a tendency we have to push our preferences upon others. But Paul's whole argument in the, the book of Colossians is this, that you are complete in Christ. Christ has done all you don't need any more. You don't need these feasts and festivals. You don't need circumcision. You don't need this wisdom of the world. And that's 
The whole idea, verse 17, these things of the Old Testament, these feast festivals, new moon, Sabbath, are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now certainly as shadows, they help us to understand Jesus in greater ways. But they're not pressing and obligatory upon any of us. So I just say this, when it comes to celebrating these feasts, you're free to do so. might help you, but you're not bound but I do think it's helpful for us to understand these words not written to us but written for us from the book of Leviticus to describe how Christ was being anticipated and maybe how his second coming is being anticipated. All right, that's the best I can do, Leviticus 23. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray you'd give us wisdom in these things. Help us to discern how far we can go and stretch as we think about symbolism and typology and and hinting at and referring to, um, Lord, I pray, God, that you would, would help us. God, help us even today as we think about how you've guided the Jews to realize that you've got a greater plan than just feasts and festivals. You've, you've got a plan that is directing people to, to Christ as these are, are feasts and festivals, um, God, which are shadows. The substance belongs to Christ. So, God, let us hold on to the substance to Jesus, our once-for-all sacrifice. Help us, O God, in Jesus' name. Amen.